pray with me? Fathers, we take a few minutes now to enter into your word. We pray that you would speak to us clearly through it. Um, we pray that uh, I wouldn't get in the way. Um, that you would make it clear to us what you have to say in your word and how we should live in response to it. God, none of us can respond appropriately to it without your help and without your grace. So we pray that you would provide that by your Holy Spirit. Give us what we need to have ears to hear, eyes to see, uh, hearts to accept uh, and bear fruit from the word uh, this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we're going to start a new series uh, next week, uh, moving through First uh, John, and so we're kind of an in-between week, a transition week, and in those transition times, I, I like to continue working our way through the Psalms. I, I hope that one day, eventually, if the Lord tarries and I grow old enough, uh, uh, I would have preached through all of the Psalms uh, eventually, but we'll find ourselves in Psalm 14. Today, So if, you're, if you don't have a Bible, lift your hand up, we'll bring one to you. If you're not familiar with the Bible, you want to know where the Psalms are, you can use the table of contents in the front or crack your Bible open kind of in the middle uh, and go left a little bit and you'll find yourself heading towards Psalm chapter 14. Uh, they're not really chapters, it's, it's a song book. The Psalms, it's a collection of songs that God's people would sing together when they gather like we are today, the songs that we sang just now. Um, and so when you read through the Psalms, you see that these are songs, but they don't sound like songs that are necessarily uh, populating our Christian radio uh, programs today. They don't sound, uh, they're, they're deep, sometimes almost off-putting. Uh, they invite you into lament. Uh, they're full of grief sometimes, questions and they speak to difficulties. If you feel like, hey, you're a Christian, and it's a hard, you have a hard time following God, and you feel like it's only you, read the Psalms. Read, read the Psalms. And as they, uh, as they invite you into wrestling with raw emotions, they're full of theology, but they begin oftentimes with a place of difficulty. And one of those difficulties, I think, especially as you try to live out the Christian life in today's society, post-Christendom, where it's, um, we've moved from uh, sort of Christianity being kind of uh, the going agreement to it not being the agreement, to it being dumb, foolish, naive. If you're a Christian, you're stupid. How can you cling to old values that don't work in today's society anymore? Um, if you're honest with yourself, you may realize there's been times in your life where you feel quite embarrassed to be a Christian. And if you've never been at least tempted to feel embarrassed about being a Christian, it might be because you don't spend time with non-Christians. If you've been to a secular school, secular teachers, if you've been to a secular college, or if you're about to go there, you're about to get it handed to you. You are an idiot for being a Christian. It's none of this tolerance stuff. That's for everyone else. Everyone else can live however they want. 
and it's to be accepted and tolerated unless you are a Christian, you intolerant bigot. That's the world you live in. You ever feel embarrassed to be a Christian? We're total strangers. We're total aliens in this land. We don't fit in. We don't belong. And that's not just you if you're feeling that way. That's normal. And that's not a New Testament thing. That's always been that way. We're surrounded by people that reject God. Whether or not they claim to be atheists, they live like atheists. If they don't reject God outright, they reject the biblical version of God. And they embrace a version of God that accommodates and suits how they want to live. That's a functional atheism. But by and large, there's a growing voice of atheists that argue it is not enough for me to not believe in God. But we've got to eradicate religion. We've got to stamp it out. Because it's foolish to be a believer. It's foolish to be a Christian. It's foolish to worship. It's foolish to sit here and sing foolish songs. Listen to a fool talk about a foolish book. One of the examples today of that sort of new atheism, uh, quote-unquote, that aggressive kind of atheism that is not okay with you being a Christian. One of those examples would be Sam Harris, uh, who got famous by publishing books and debating Christians uh, on college campuses and things like that. Pretty outspoken atheist. And here's, here's the tactic. He's just one representative of the tactic. But the tactic is, look at how dumb religion is. In other words, even when you see these guys on stage in a public debate, oftentimes you'll see the Christian sticking to the rules of the debate, talking about actual philosophical um, uh, propositions. And then on the other side, you'll have a Christopher Hitchens, you'll have a Lawrence Krauss, you'll have a Sam Harris, and all they do is poke shots. Read the Old Testament. Do you want to serve a God like that? That's ridiculous. He just, look, look at how dumb it is. You can see this just in the books that Sam Harris has published. I'll just give you a few. This, this is the book that put him on the map. It's called The End of Faith. Now here's the subtitle. The End of Faith, Religion, Terror, and the Future of Reason. You see how he's linking religion and terror. How do you get terrorists? Religion. And he's going to say Christianity has its own forms of uh, things that it contributes to the world that are terrible. But the future of reason, let's, let's reason. Use your mind and think. And if you did that, you would escape religion. You wouldn't be sitting in here in a church Sunday morning. You'd be doing something actually better with your time. The future of reason. Then he came out with a book called The Moral Landscape. This is important, and this is probably one of his more popular books. The Moral Landscape Here's the subtitle, How Science Can Determine Human Values. Some of you are Christian, some of you are religious because uh, how else would you get values? How else would you determine good and bad and right and wrong? Now, Actually, I think that's a very powerful argument for theism. 
But what, he, what he's saying is, you can cast off God and still have values. You can completely ditch religion and still know right from wrong. That's his argument. I think it's a terrible argument, but that, that's what he's saying. We want values. We want to be good people. And you don't need God to do it. Thinking you need God to do it is dumb. Another book he came up called Waking Up, A Guide to Spirituality Without Religion. Well, I want religion because I want to be spiritual. Yeah, you can have that too. Wake up. You see, right there in the title. You're asleep. Take the blinders off. And stop serving a God that doesn't exist. It's even seen in the title of his podcast, which is The Making Sense Podcast. If you don't agree with him and you believe that there's a God to serve, to worship, to respond to, that you're responsible to, you don't make any sense. The consistent message that the world gives, the unbelieving world gives to believers is that you're naive, you're stupid, you're foolish to believe in God. But the Bible asserts the opposite. Look at that first line right there in Psalm 14. A Psalm of David. Just the first line. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So that what the Bible posits is exactly the opposite, isn't it? It's not foolish to believe in God. It's actually foolish to believe in your heart that there is no God. You're a fool. You're a fool. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So that to deny God is folly. And it's a denial in the heart. It's a deep-seated posture against God. It's not that they're convinced intellectually that there's no God. It's that they don't want there to be a God. And so the, 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 the claim there is no God comes from the seat of the will, the heart. Not an argument on a chalkboard. The arguments on the chalkboard are excuses. Science. Science has proven there is no God. No, it didn't. No, it hasn't. There's evidence laying on the floor, and you can interpret the evidence any way you want. If you already have made the decision in your heart that you don't want to follow God, you're going to interpret the evidence in favor of that. But what the author is saying in this psalm imagine we just put this to music I, I wonder if we can get a worship artist to just put these lyrics and the whole song starts off with a fool says there's no god like i said the psalms are they're raw they're real they speak right to where you're at right to what you need and it understands that we live in a world that says the opposite of verse one A fool in the Hebrew is not necessarily someone who gets bad grades. It's not a low IQ. It's not an intellectual folly. You understand? The argument of the text is not people that don't believe in God. They're, they're the kinds of people that um, they just don't do math well. They don't know how to follow premises to get to a conclusion. They don't understand the intricacies of logic. That's not what he's saying. They can be brilliant. Geniuses invent things, write books. They can talk circles around you, win debates. They're intelligent. 
It's not an intelligence that is lacking, but a moral center that is lacking. The fool in the Bible, especially in the wisdom literature, is someone who rejects God and doesn't live in the way that God wants them to live. They can be very smart, but utterly foolish. So interestingly, the pot shots that the world takes at Christianity is that we're intellectually defunct. And what this is saying is to turn around and say, no, you're morally defunct. You're morally bankrupt. And that's what it says, doesn't it? It says they are corrupt. See, it doesn't say they're stupid, they're unintelligent, their IQs are low. That's not what he's saying. The reason why they're fools for rejecting God is because they are corrupt. In fact, in the, in the Hebrew, the, the corrupt is a verb. They corrupt. <laughs> they're not just okay being corrupt. They corrupt things. What do they corrupt? They corrupt deeds. They corrupt the things they do. They do abominable things. Abominable. Well, that's a strong word, ain't it? Abominable. We're not allowed to say that anymore. That's an abomination. No, 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 no. Be culturally sensitive. Times have changed. Stop being stuck in the past. Nothing's an abomination anymore. The only abomination today is to think that there's such thing as an abomination. But the biblical word for abomination are the things that don't fit what God has laid out, the things that run against the grain of what God has laid out, the things that are detestable to God, that God abhors. These are horrific realities of rejecting God. But we, we swim in it. It's the shows you watch, the songs you like to listen to, the books you like to read. And it's, it, it, we're, we're, we are so embedded in the culture around us, we don't even find abominable things abominable anymore. But what the author is saying, once you've rejected God, you were only left with abomination. You were only left with corruption. The result of saying, you know what, there's no God. The result of deciding in your heart that you're not going to follow God as far as you're concerned, God is not even there. It's corruption, abomination, and not doing good. There is none who does good. Now that's interesting. He's not just saying that once you cast off God, you do bad things. Once you cast off God, you don't do good things. You do bad things, and even the good things that you think are good aren't good. Well, he's probably talking about certain people, certain really hardcore atheists. No, there is none who does good. Anyone in the category of rejecting God, whether they call themselves atheists, agnostic, whatever they want to call themselves, in their hearts, God might as well not exist. They're abomination. They do abominable deeds. They're corrupt. How many of them? Which ones of them? All of them. There is none who do good. Well, that's an Old Testament thing. Read Romans 3. When Paul quotes Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, which is a mirror chapter uh, psalm to this psalm, and Paul's saying, yeah, Jews, Greeks, everybody is referred to in this verse. None do good. And so the folly of casting off the restraints of the existence of God is, is, is living a life that is evil. There's no moral good. Now, there's the difficulty, right? And, and here's where it gets confusing. Because you know people in your life that are unbelievers, 
They tell you straight up, I don't believe in God. And they're some of the most decent people you know. Then you come to church. Now, maybe not this church, but once in a while you meet a believer and he's kind of a jerk. Once in a while you're friends with a, a Christian and she's kind of a jerk. Your unbelieving friends are more forgiving toward you than your believing friends. You have unbelieving friends that go so far back, they would never cut you off. You have unbelieving friends that, that cut you off all the time. You said something they didn't like, they're not going to confront you about it. They just cut you off and you have to figure it out some other way that they don't like you anymore. And all that junk you thought you left in the sandbox when you were a little kid is still coming out with 40, 50, 60 year olds that are just civilized children. And they're in the church. Then you got a text that says, hey, if you don't believe in God, you're terrible. And then you're looking at your life around you and you see people that don't believe in God and they seem really nice. They don't seem that terrible. And you see some Christians that there's some, maybe some nice things about them, hopefully, if they're genuinely Christian, but there's some messed up things about them too. And you're like, that's pretty terrible. I'd rather hang out with this guy. I'd rather hang out with the atheist. Now that's a shame on us. That's a shame on the church. But what's confusing is, what, how do you square this passage and passages like it with the reality that you know people that don't seem very abominable, but they don't believe in God? Is he exaggerating? Is he, is he just throwing a, a, too wide of a net? Maybe you should, uh, you know what, David? Everyone's not like that, man. I know you're having a hard time, but there are some good people that don't believe in God. David rejects that, and Paul rejects that. The Bible rejects that. If you know someone in your life, they might seem decent, they might do civil good, but if they reject God, even the good things they do are abominable. There are no good things that they do. That's what the Bible says. Why? The reason why is because the good that they do has no God in it. They might help a little old lady move her boxes into the U-Haul trailer for no pay. But why did they do it? They can't do it for God. They can't do it because they love God. And they can't love that woman with a godly love. What other kind of love is there? Selfish love? What do atheists tell you we get our morals from? Survival of the fittest. And how do you survive? Well, if you do good things to other people, hopefully they'll do good to you. And if you never do good things to other people, that's hard for you to survive. But if you look out for other people, hopefully that comes back and it looks out for you, the karma thing. But that's a selfish motive, isn't it? You can, you're only left with selfish motives. It can't be a godly motive because God doesn't exist. And so even the good things that people do that don't believe in God, they're corrupt, they're abominable because they can't do those things for God. If you read verse 2, says the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there's any who understand, who have wisdom. What kind of wisdom? Wisdom to do what? Who seek after God, and they're not there. All have turned aside, verse 3. They've become corrupt. There's none who's good, not even one. Why? Because they don't seek after God in the things that they're doing. That's why. That makes a good work not good. Because it's not for God. 
No one does good because the good that they try to do is apart from the Lord. They'll accomplish something. They'll accomplish something great. Who are they thankful to for that accomplishment? Can't thank God for it. Who's left to thank? I did it. Maybe my parents. Maybe the producers that helped me do this. Get this acting. We're such a messed up culture. Half the awards on TV have to do with sports and acting and singing. Like, we, we, we cherish the things of the lowest value. But what is there to think? Who is there to think except myself if there's no God? I did it. I did the singing. I did the acting. I wrote the script. I won this award. And that's self-glory. Glory that belongs to God. And so the lack of thankfulness means it's a self-centered base that you work from. And that makes it abominable. They can't give glory to God for their gifts. They can't give glory to God for their talents. They can only thank random mutation. The molecules that bounce together just right to produce life and a kind of life that happens to be good at swinging a bat or writing lyrics or a beat that bops. Wow, it's genetically mutated that way. There's no thanks. They don't turn to God when they're in trouble. If there's no God, where do you turn to when you're in trouble, when you'd hate yourself? Go read a self-help book and learn that you are all that you need to have everything you want and that you need in this life. It's look in the mirror, and by mirror they don't mean the word of God. There is no God. So in other words, God gets no glory in anything they have or anything they do. They get the glory. And therefore, the things that they do that are good are corrupt. I thought of it this way. All good that is not God's good is no good. All good that's not God's good is no good. Well, that's his perspective. When he writes this psalm, he looks around him and he sees people that don't believe in God. He's not saying all they do all day is murder people. He's not saying they're all rapists, they're all child abusers. He's just saying they don't give glory to God, they don't seek God. And because they don't seek God, they only seek themselves in everything that they do. But there's another group of people, right? There's a group of people that aren't fools. There's a group of people that uh, God looks down and they are with God. They are the ones who do good. He calls them the righteous in verse 5, the generation of the righteous, he calls them my people in verse 4. Right? So there's a group that are not the atheists. They are, and they're not just theists. They follow the covenant God, Yahweh. They follow the Lord and they worship Him. And I do want to pause here just to make this clear how this works. That God's covenant people are those whom He calls not those who break the categories on their own and seek after him of their own wisdom. They figured it out. Why are you a Christian if you're in here today and you're a Christian? Why are you a Christian? Because you figured it out. Because you rose above the folly and gained wisdom for yourself? No. God said, come here. That's why. It is by grace. Remember how God's covenant people started. And you get the story about um, uh, Abram. 
And his brother uh, gets married. Abram gets married. His brother has a bunch of kids. Oops, he can't have kids. Now God is going to choose one of these two brothers to produce a line, to fulfill Genesis 3.15, that one will come to crush the head of the serpent, kill death for us, conquer death for us, remove the curse for us, conquer the enemy for us. One will come from the seed, but to have seed, you need generation, right? You need kids that have kids that have kids until the one comes. Now God is going to choose one of these two brothers to bring that seed, and who does he choose? The one that can't even produce seed! The text tells us nothing in Genesis about how good Abram was. He was a good guy. God was looking, and he's like, oh, Abraham. No, God was looking, and he found no one that's good. But he called Abraham and gave him what he needed to be the man that he was. Jesus emphasizes this in John 15, 16. He tells the disciples, you didn't choose me, but the Father chose you and appointed you, or I chose you and appointed you to bear fruit. He's not talking about being an apostle. He's talking about being a Christian that does good. You didn't choose me, I chose you. John 6, 44, no one comes to the Father unless, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So if you're a believer today, you're a believer. If you're in covenant relationship with God, you're in covenant relationship with God, not because you weren't the fool. You figured it out. It was because God confronted you with the gospel and you repented. And you place your faith in Jesus Christ. So we're not smarter than the fools. We are the fools. And the only thing that makes us righteous, the only thing that makes us God's people, and not the fools that deny God, is because God did a special work in your life. So that the good that we do is not, I did that. I wrote that song. I preached that sermon. That ministry team was a mess till I became the team leader. Oh, God did that. And the good that we do and the good that we experience, we render it back to God because God is the author of it. He gets the glory. He gets the praise. There's no room for us to boast in anything because it's a work that he has done. We're in covenant relationship with him because of something he has done. He gets the glory. So that what makes us different than the fools has nothing to do with intellect or moral good of our own, but something that God has done. That's the difference. So this psalm has two groups. One group is the wise group. One group is the foolish group. One group is the righteous group. One group is the unrighteous group. And we're all fools until we're confronted by the grace of God. And you might be in here this morning, and you're part of the wrong group, my friend. And the grace of God is confronting you right now to challenge the folly of rejecting him. How do you get in? How do you change groups? It's not go to seminary. I can tell you that from being on both sides of the class. It's turning to Christ, embracing him. He's done what we couldn't do. He succeeded where we failed. And in Christ, we can have grace and we can have eternal life. For the unbeliever, the one stuck in that camp of rejecting God, living how they want, thinking I'm good enough, The things I do are good. I don't do abominable things. The only option left for that person is to attack believers. If you read that in verse 4, it talks about these people that reject God. They're corrupt. There's none who are good. Have they no knowledge, verse 4? Don't they know? 
All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord, they're not content to just not call upon the Lord themselves, but the fact that you think they should call upon the Lord, they hate that. They hate that. And what we're seeing, the trend that we're seeing, is a growing animosity toward Christians. Now, if in your life you go, I don't have that many unbelievers in my life that attack me, how quiet have you been about your faith? Have you, have you resigned the friendship to just let it be? Or do you hate the fact, does it keep you awake at night, that you've got friends in your life that are going to judgment under the full weight of condemnation? And we put the comfort of an undisrupted friendship before the awkwardness of telling the truth of the gospel. Well, I did that once, again. Now, if that's our posture, if we're like the psalmist and we write songs about it, we sing about it, we talk about it, they're not okay with that. And what you're going to experience is heat. This is what Jesus promised. That's what he guaranteed. If you talk about me, they're going to hate you. Why? Because they hate me. This, this is not Jesus coming up with it out of nowhere. It's right there. Those who are corrupt, when they're told they're corrupt, they attack. No, you're corrupt. You're the fool. Well, they don't know. They don't have the knowledge. So what do they do? They eat up the people like you're munching on bread. It's not hard for them. I mean, if you're a moron and morally bankrupt, they're, they're not going to put it softly. I'm going to eat you up. You ready for it, college-bound students? You ready for it, business owners? It's going to get difficult. It's going to be tough. To be the one that claims to have wisdom is to be the one that tells those who lack the wisdom that they're fools. They're not going to just take it on the chin. The great consequence of their folly is that it ends in great terror. Look at verse 5. They don't call upon the Lord. They attack those who do. And in that attack, in their posture of being against God and His people, verse 5, there, it's not a place, it's a posture, right? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous now he turns the attention, he's talking directly to those who are the unbelievers, and he said, you would shame the plans of the poor. Uh, I think that should, that's better translated afflicted or weak. In other words, this is not about how much money you make. This is about the people that are afflicted and persecuted. These are the ones that are weak. They're poor in the sense that the world around them doesn't want them to have anything. They're the afflicted people of God. And he's telling them, you would shame their plans, but the Lord is his refuge. The afflicted person takes refuge in the Lord. And one day you're going to realize God has got their back. He does exist. And you should have known him. And he's going to protect his people. He's going to save his people. And his people, the believers, have a sure hope of God's rescue. Look how the psalm ends with this glorious note in 6 and 7. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord 
It's his refuge where you hide, right, from the storm, from the judgment. Verse 7, oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. It sounds like he's saying, oh, I hope it happens in verse 7, oh, that salvation for Israel would come. I hope it comes, but then he's saying in the next line, when the Lord restores. He's hoping for it, he's wanting it to come, he knows it's going to come. So when he looks around him, everyone's telling him he's a fool. The way that he locks in his mind, wait a minute, I'm not the fool, they're the fools. Even if it's a million to one. The reason why they're the fools is because of what's coming. And the reason why the meek are blessed is because they will inherit the earth. Right now, it's meekness. And it's challenging. We have to stay humble. But there is a time where the Lord will restore the fortunes of His people. Now, obviously, this is specific to Israel. That salvation will come out of Zion, where God rests with His people. The Lord restores the fortune of His people, Jacob, Israel. Of course, you fast forward into the New Testament, and even if you're not a Jew, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are grafted into true Israel. So that our hope and our longing is not a fertile crescent out in the Middle East somewhere, but something larger than that, something bigger than that. That's included because the entire whole earth is going to be a new earth. And so you have a real physical hope that God is going to reign with His people physically in a real way and that that's coming. But if you're not part of that covenant group, what you will experience is great terror. That's, that's scary. And so this psalm, just like many passages in the Bible, it kind of cuts two different ways. For those who are in the group that say there is no God, it's a scary passage. For those who are in the group that say, no, there's a God. He has saved me. I take refuge in Him. He's gracious. He protects me. And I hope in Him. There is salvation. No terror. You'll feel terror now, out there, when it's challenging in the workplace, in the schools, at your family reunions. But There will come a time when the tables turn. And you'll look back and go, wow, they were fools. They were fools for rejecting a gracious God that provides refuge for those who do seek Him when He draws them in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we think about those in our lives, loved ones who don't know You, friends, neighbors, and they are kind people. Oftentimes, it's very congenial, easy to get along with. We pray that we would see them with your eyes and see that they are in a place that is at enmity with you just like each and every one of us were at one time. So we pray that we would um, be bold to communicate the gospel to them, that they would look at our lives and that they would see a consistency in the good that we do, that we do things out of motivation of seeking you, of calling upon the Lord, and they would see the difference. God, I pray, anyone in here this morning who doesn't know you, I pray that you would capture them, draw them to yourself, allow them to realize that they need to uh, stop convincing themselves that they're good enough, uh, but that instead, 
in your eyes, they're far from you. That they do things not for you. And so they need to be rescued. Lord, rescue them this morning. As we close in this song, Father, we want to behold you for who you are, for how your word presents you, and we don't want to shape you into something less. So we worship you for what you reveal about yourself. You are awesome. You are weighty. You are also gracious and merciful. And we're living in a time where there's still time to turn and to change. And we pray that we will see that more and more in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.